This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things but at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Shouldn't you be at work? It's a lovely chip! Oh, it's a brilliant goal from Lord Bohinen! Still it's not away. Southgate shot. Milosevic scores. DPR could do with a bit of magic from him. Maybe this is it. It is! Andy Sinton from nothing. Brian Roy has headed for his interlead. Beckham's got it out wide. He's shifted it onto the right foot, whips it in, and there's James Ward has headed it home. It's 1 0. Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, he hasn't. No. Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin Will He Score? It's Series 7, Episode 5. I'm Chris Skull. Joining me, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And the man who doesn't think Neville Southall's views are socialist enough, it's Michael Marden. <laughs> Hello. How are you both? Great. Yeah, good. We've wanted to get Neville Southall on for so long. He's not only, you know, arguably, and I would argue it, the best goalkeeper of his generation in the world, but he's one of the most interesting and quirky personalities to have played the game in my lifetime. And yeah. I, I, he's been one we've been after for a long, long time. And I, there's something so inspirational about him as a man. And this interview did not disappoint. No. Also, not as scary as I was worried about. I'm going to say it. Not as scary as I was worried about. But before Neville Southall, that isn't the only Quickly Kevin episode that's come out this week. We have got a brand new format of episode. It is Quickly Kevin, Will He Scare? It's a spooky story special. We've been having your, your spooky Halloween. stories. Halloween, to be clear. We haven't just completely lost our minds. <laughs> um, there is discussion of Ghost Watch. We've got some of your spooky stories. We'll be discussing our own spooky stories. Most importantly, Chris, sorry to interrupt, but we need to get to the headline. Michael will tell us about the six paranormal experiences he's had even though he doesn't believe <laughs> who doesn't want to hear that there's a man who's inviting the seventh paranormal experience <laughs> so uh, i will also tell you about a um an email about uh, when Derek akora played for liverpool uh, a, there's a discussion of uh, which football stadium is the most haunted. There is also a Manuel Munia story that will really make you not want to sleep at night. 
Oh, really? Yes. That's what that's what used to happen to Arsene Wenger with Manuel Almunia. <laughs> <laughs> a new kind of Manuel Almunia nightmare. Um, so that is available now on Patreon. Also available on Patreon is episode two of the word-by-word read of Striker with Ivo Graham. It's chapter two, The Plot Thickens, and uh, it's a genuinely brilliant episode. We loved recording both of them. Uh, just go over to patreon.com forward slash quickly Kevin if you would like to hear them and michael shall we hear a little bit now do you want to give the listeners a little clip why not this is a a taste of the quickly kevin will he scare halloween special got a ghost story from mick quinn which we should just oh yes <laughs> we should just quickly drop in no one else is getting this kind yeah. of content uh and i should say a quick thanks to um john smith and dan trelfer who uh sent this in they've written a couple of brilliant books oh, they've written great books about uh basically they've gone through the archive of every kind of footballer autobiography and collated them into a like really great funny kind of snackable version of that um the first one's called booked and the other one's called second yellow so definitely worth checking out if unlike me you don't want to read every autobiography of every footballer <laughs> you we book on this show and you just you want actually to saw it as a spoiler their books didn't you yeah <laughs> Uh, so this is this is from um, Mick Quinn's autobiography, which is called Who Ate All the Pies? The Life and Times of Mick Quinn. Uh, and this is uh, when he was a youngster at Derby County and staying in digs and feeling homesick. He says, uh, to make my loneliness worse, I had a very frightening experience one night as I slept in my digs. I woke with the hairs on my neck standing on end. There was a chill in the room. <laughs> I don't know when I was picturing his moustache. Yeah, his moustache. <laughs> 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 there was a chill in the room and my breath was leaving a vapor trail i craned my neck over my shoulder and let out a shriek standing (laughs) i can't imagine mick quinn shrieking no neither can i because shriek you think is really high pitched i cannot imagine mick quinn doing a high pitch i'm picturing now mick quinn with um his mustache fully on end uh reacting like Kevin McAllister when he puts on the aftershave. I'm <laughs> <laughs> alone. Also, when I think of young Mick Quinn, like even as a 10-year-old, he's got a moustache. <laughs> How can he not? Uh, standing at my shoulder was a ghostly figure in human form. <gasps> I jumped out of bed and hit the light switch. And we've got to ask, was this penned by Mick or did he have a ghostwriter? Are we right? <laughs> oh, oh, lovely. Fantastic. Lovely. Fantastic. <laughs> um, the apparition disappeared, but I kept the light on all night and hardly slept a wink. It shook me badly. The next morning, I told Wayne, the other apprentice lodging there, and he told me that a member of the family had died in my room. I haven't, I haven't seen a ghost since, but I do believe in the spirit world. It really put the shits up me and made me feel <laughs> more homesick than ever. <laughs> An absolutely superb gear change of two sentences from... <laughs> I do believe in the spirit world. Straight into it, really put the shits at me. A lovely, a lovely semantic sleight of hand as he hits you. With. <laughs> Mick Quinn is exactly the type of person that I would believe if he told me that. <laughs> yeah. What I do admire about Mick is he got any sleep at all? Because there's no way I'm even. Yeah. I barely slept. How are you closing your eyes in that room ever again? <laughs> 
So that is out now and available next week is chapter two of the Striker Steve Barnes trilogy, chapter by chapter, reread uh, with Ivo Graham. It's a brilliant chapter. The plot thickens as Steve Barnes gets accused of murder. That will be out next week. Not just that, if you uh, join our Patreon, there's lots of extra things you can get. All these episodes you hear have longer versions on Patreon. There's extra Neville Southall for you over there. You'll also get the episodes early. You'll get four pieces of merchandise a year. We've also launched the forum this week, and there is some amazing chatter on there from the best sponsors of the 90s to the best goalkeepers who played outfield in the 90s. That is just as every bit as riveting as it sounds. But the most important thing <laughs> you get with XJ8 membership of the Quickly Kevin Fan Club is the live show. We had our live show on Sunday with Matt Ford and Tom Crane. Tom Crane has progressed with his Nomad FC through to the semi-finals. Do you want to catch up on that episode? It's all available over on the Patreon. Just go over to patreon.com forward slash quickly Kevin. And I should say with regards to the forum, I think I'm now up to 17 lifetime bans for people mentioning Peter Schmeichel getting chipped. So you, you have been warned. <laughs> Uh, genuinely, it's been an absolute pleasure to be on that forum. Um, I thought we were the three biggest dweebs about 90s football, but it turns out we're actually very much scratching the surface. Yeah, I thought we were the ones handing out the Kool-Aid, but it's, it's the other way around. <laughs> Do you want some correspondence? Yes, please. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the Electronic Post Bag. You've got mail. Okay. Well, in honour of the uh, Quickly Kevin Patreon forum, this is from Jamie Shoesmith, advertising hoardings in the 90s. Evening chaps, an decidedly poor choice of musical taste in the late 90s, I became a massive super fan of the Italian trio and one-hit wonder Eiffel 65. (laughs) In a very odd twist of fate, I turned up at Stamford Bridge one afternoon and noticed the band had actually bothered to take up an advertising hoarding on the Matthew Harding Upper, in a minimalist, Raynham Steel-esque move. It simply said, Eiffel 65, Blue Dabba D. The choice of the colour of their song being the only link to advertising at Chelsea. One day, the hoarding was gone from the stand. But where had it gone? It was in my bedroom. That's where. <laughs> Thinking the hoarding looked smaller than usual from my vantage point, I emailed the club and asked them if I could claim the hoarding for myself. The club agreed, setting a date after the end of the season, as long as I collected it from Stamford Bridge. Showing up at the gates and expecting a friendly face to pass me the hoarding, like handing over a giant oversized check on children in need, I instead rounded the corner and found the hoarding dumped on the floor. I had been mistaken in thinking it was small. I'm not exaggerating when I say it was 40 feet long. We had to break it into bits, load it into my dad's camper van and take it home. Eiffel 65 just about fitted the length of my room wall. Cheers, Jamie. That is amazing. What happened to it then? Is it still there now? What happens to that? Yeah, I suppose it rusts and over over the years, but I don't know. It's funny how big those hoardings actually are in real life. Yeah, when, when West Ham le- left Upton Park, someone tr- like someone stole the Sir Trevor Brookings stand sign. Images went on Twitter of them trying to get it on the train, and it takes about eight of them and takes up most of the carriage. <laughs> like it's not a sneaky little cat burglar like escapade. Yeah, it's a huge undertaking stealing a hoarding. What have you got from a football ground? Is a great question. Turf or seats? We're not interested in. Yeah, we're not interested. But in any, turf or anything seats. more obscure? It's such a ninety thing, isn't it? That like emailing or phoning a club or anywhere like asking yeah. to keep. It's like um, 
Fordy's mum asked that shop and went in every day for months to get that big yeah. Stuart Pierce cutout. And I remember doing the same thing at Blockbuster in the mid nineties because I wanted a giant cutout of Kevin Costner in Waterworld. <laughs> so for about three years in my room was just this sort of six foot five Kevin Costner in Waterworld. By the way, on on that nineties wall decorations, I was reading a Guardian feature which was like classic early loaded covers so like there's the first one with gary oldman and there's the one with kathy burke and stuff and i didn't even know loaded did this because it's for grown-ups presumably it had it has a double-sided gatefold poster it advertises yeah and so the reader has got to choose between lisa snowden on one side and kenny dalgleish on the other <laughs> lisa snowden not getting much wall space in her blackburn is she <laughs> You reading old articles about Loaded is such a busman's holiday. Have have a 90s day off. Now, footballers talking in a game. Just watching their Marseille v Man City game without crowd noise, hearing uh, Sterling question the linesman, brought back fond memories of going to Chelsea games in the mid-90s and sitting so close that I could hear what players said to each other. I always assumed they'd talk in some code which would disguise the sophisticated tactics they're attempting to implement. These illusions were dashed when I saw Chelsea play Southampton at the bridge. Frank Sinclair was attempting a throw-on. He shouted to our striker, Mark Steen, Steeno, Steeno. Steen's reply could not be heard, but Sinclair's reply to him was, I can't throw it that far. (laughs) (laughs) It has remained with me since. In many ways, it's brought me close to the team and Sinclair, knowing they too were human and could admit to their shortcomings. Guys, you never consider that, do you? <laughs> no, I can't throw it that far. That reminds me uh, when we used to play under 12 football, we had a goalkeeper who had brilliant reflexes, but his kicking, his distribution was awful. And for the first half of the season, so many of his goal kicks went to the opposing striker that we, mm. we would concede, I'd say, 20 goals from our own goal kicks a season. And we just we had to pull him off it in the end and have our midfielder just punt it out of the field. You don't get that much, as much now, but back in the day, in football, there was m- more of a... Occasionally, outfield players would take goal kicks. Yeah. For, yeah. Not always it's, when the keeper was injured either. It would just no, be because just, they could kick it further. I always think that's that's so embarrassing for the goalkeeper when it, an outfield player has to take the goal kick and not because you're injured. Yeah, it's a bit like your mum or dad coming into school because you're getting bullied and like threatening, <laughs> threatening the bully. Sitting at the back of class. Um, we've had a lot in. Do you want some 90s footballers as chocolate bars? Oh, yes. This is from Nick Butler. Barry Fry's Turkish Delight. Uh, Michael, you can okay or know them, okay? Okay, yeah, that one's a straight, straight yes. Could we have um, some kind of bed or something? Barry Fry's Turkish Delight. Yep. Mars Bohinen. Oh, yes. Yeah. Keith Curly Whirly. <laughs> these, these are great. Yeah, these they're good, great. aren't they? Kit Kat Simons. <laughs> yeah, fine. Cadbury's Cream Edgar Davids. <laughs> yep. Daniel Fonz Double Decker. Yeah, maybe. Twixu Patalinen. Oh, <laughs> That's my favourite of the lot. Twixu Patalinen. And uh, Lionel Perez. Yeah, that, fine. They are from Nick Butler. There's some great ones. Twixu Patalina remains my favourite footballer as a chocolate bar. Um, thank you to everyone who got in touch. This is how, if you want to send us chocolate bars or anything else. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin.com. 
and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. So up next, at long last, it's the Neville Southall episode. We were so pumped and so excited and a little nervous for this one. If you want a fuller version of this episode that includes us asking Neville about Michael Owen's soccer skills appearance. To be honest, it's the iconic Neville Southall moment, which isn't a terrible thing to say. Uh, if you want that extended version, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash quickly Kevin to get the director's cut longer episode. But without further ado, here at long last, so excited about this, it's Neville Southall. Our guest this week is, and we all agreed this beforehand, the greatest goalkeeper of the 80s and 90s, known for his cat-like reflexes, incredible shot-stopping abilities and forthright opinions. He remains to this day the most decorated player in the history of Everton. It's our pleasure to welcome to Quickly Kevin, Neville Southall. Hello, how are you? Yes, good, 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 Neville. How are you? Um, I'm okay. I'm off school, so it's great. Go back Thursday. You've mentioned their school, so I had to say you're doing a bit of coaching with the school. Is no, that I right? work in a school. I basically do everything in the school that needs doing. Dog's body, really. Drive the minibus, pick the kids up, <laughs> stop fights. Are the kids aware of your football career? Some are, some aren't. Usually the dads are. So I don't really tend to talk about it an awful lot. It's funny to like discuss this, like where your career is now. You've had such a varied career right from the start. You were always good, like you do. You were a hod carrier. You were a bin man for a while. Did you ever think you would make it as a footballer? Um, not really. In all fairness, I only did the bins for six weeks, but that seems to make me more famous than anything else. Really, <laughs> <laughs> it certainly wasn't a good six weeks getting out papas for either. It's different now. Um, so, yeah, look, I give myself a time frame, really. I give myself till I was about 17, 18. And then I thought, well, I better start looking to do, do something else. But luckily, I held out till I was 20 and I managed to sign for Berry then. I mean, it's difficult because obviously you're not playing on the pitch. You're, you're a different position to everyone else, so you're in goal. I mean, you can't, like, boss the game at that level as the goalkeeper. But did you feel like you were a class above the people you're playing with? Why can't you boss the people when you're there? Because let's be honest, there's 10 idiots in front of me. If I can get them all to do what they're supposed to do, I'm happy on I don't have to do nothing. <laughs> so, so really, it's about it's about knowing their personalities and how you talk to them, what their strengths and weaknesses are. So you can affect mm. it by your voice. And sometimes I've come off and I've used my voice for 90 minutes and you get in the bar and you you know you have not much to do and somebody goes oh easy day today for you and I'm thinking well actually I work my bits off here shouting at everybody and communicating properly and getting them to do what they're supposed to do and you've just told me it was dead easy you go and do it it's 90% mental and 10% physical in, in goalkeeping really it, it is hard yeah but yeah because you might not do anything for 89 minutes and if your concentration is not good then you've had it it's not good having the reflexes of a cat the anticipation of a snail, is it? <laughs> <laughs> but it's really interesting. You talk about it in um, in your book, in Mind Games. You say like um, the goalkeeping position is all down to you. A striker can blame poor service or he's not getting the support he needs, but a goalkeeper, it's completely on your shoulders, all down to your performance. It's quite a lonely role, really, when you think about it. I love that bit of the position because you you live and die by your decisions. So you're either going to be good or you're not going to be good. And the ones that make the best decisions are the better ones. 
because you make them on a more consistent level. If you don't make them as much, then you've had it. Yeah. That, that's the best bit for me. So did you find you, because you're quite, you're a confident character, but that throughout your career, did you have that or did you kind of build that confidence as you got more success? I don't know whether it's confidence or not. It just comes with experience, I think. I think mm. when you're young, everything's, you know, you're so naive, you just do things on instinct. You know, you do things that maybe you shouldn't do and then you learn by your mistakes and eventually you, you get your experience and you come through and, and you know, you're probably now in your height. There'll be an age group where you become either less fashionable or older, same as goalkeepers. When you're young, you're potentially great. When when you're playing well, you're in your prime, and when you're getting a little bit older, you either think you're absolutely shit or you're over the hill. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it now. Thanks for <laughs> So you've phone... got it all to come, mate. Don't worry about that. Your phone will ring one day, Josh. It'll be Howard Kendall. He'll be saying, <laughs> time's up. <laughs> uh, Neville, let's, can we just talk about like some of the clubs you played for um, when you were younger? Bangor City, Conroy United, Winsford United. You, like you say, you didn't turn pro till you were 20. So what, what was it like being at those clubs in, in the late 70s? Well, I made my debut in a man's league at 12. Wow. <laughs> so I played in my school basically two years above. Say so I was playing for the under-14s, I was 12. And then in the afternoon, I played a man's league. Sunday morning, I play in the pubs team. Uh, and then Sunday afternoon, I actually play my own age group. So so growing up, it was great. And when I got a little bit older, obviously, I was working on the buildings. You know, I played Saturday um, and then Sunday morning all, all the time. And I, I never missed a Saturday or a Sunday if I could help it. Because, you know, what's it like going into Wales and playing where when you kick off, there's a telegraph pole right next to the centre circle? <laughs> it's not a really a help. <laughs> Or when you go to another place and the pitch is shaped basically like a U with the goals on the top end of the U's and it's full of sheep poo. <laughs> that, that's not a great place for the goalie. To be <laughs> you, um, you talk about in your book, like when you come to a top level club as a professional footballer in your era, you didn't need to do too much thinking. Like Everything was done for you. And I wondered, being at these clubs when you were younger, did it give you a sense of independence? Because... When you're at um, like Bangor City, no one's given you. It's not like an apprenticeship at a top level club. You've got to do everything yourself. Did that give you a bit of independence? That kind of background. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it made you realise what what actually work is. You know, you don't come in for two hours a day and then, then go home. It was like I worked from seven till seven normally, so so there were long days. You know, if I worked on the bins at the same time, I was working for my uncle, so I'd finish the bins at probably half ten, and then go home have someone to eat, and then go back to my uncle's till four or five or six o'clock at night. So, yeah, it's, it, it's different. I mean, when I went to Bury, you know, one of my first training sessions was the last one out of sight. So my first training session with Bury, I actually stood behind a bush so I didn't have to do any sprints, <laughs> which, is not, <laughs> which is not actually, you know, my when I dreamed of being a professional footballer, and the first thing I did was stood behind the bush and I thought, I could have done this in my park at home, couldn't I, really? <laughs> what was it like? Like, you signed for Berry, And what was the, like, uh, that Division 4 club? But did it feel like a huge step up in quality? Gosh, to be fair, I'm very much one of them who go, well, I'll go and try. If I'm no good, I'm no good. And if I'm all right, well, I'll, I'll crack on with it. So I didn't have any preconceptions. I expected it to be 10 times more professional than what it was. Yeah, you know, but we uh, um, and at Berry, before I got to the club, the fellow who signed me had actually got the sack, 
So oh, he'd yeah. done well, really, because he'd got the sack in the summer before I got there. Yeah. And then when I got there, the new manager knew nothing about me. Wasn't that really interested? And I said, look, you know, you promised to find me a house. So he went, well, there's a the door, there's the bus number, go and find your own house. <laughs> uh, so, and when you say so it wasn't they, as... Uh, oh, sorry, carry on. Well, it wasn't as professional as it is now. Obviously, there was there was nobody brought drinks down unless you, you know, you might have a cup of water now and again. But it was not... It was about not showing any fear, mm. um, being as tough as you could, and working basically your nuts off every single day because there was none of this where you work too hard stuff. It was like if you didn't work hard every day, then there's something wrong with you. Uh, but luckily, I'd been on the buildings and I'd worked. You know, we were self-employed in the buildings, so obviously the harder we worked, the more money we got, so we all grafted. Uh, but, you know, I bet it was basically you've got to work and work and work. Maybe because, you know, at that level, it is a lot about hard work, or it was a lot about hard work. It's changed a bit now. And it was all about sort of being a man and, you know, don't you dare if your leg's hanging off, tell somebody that you're hurt or or, or start whinging about it. You just crack on and get on with it. And it, it has all changed now for the, for the better in lots of ways. But in, in some ways, it, you'd like a fine balance between the two mm. where, you, where people could actually be themselves. There, you, were, you weren't allowed to be yourself unless you were quite strong. You know, when I walked in there, and I was replacing somebody who'd been there for years and years and years. I know John was 38, John Forrest, when I got to it. So when I made my debut, I walked into the goal for the warm-up, and somebody went, oh, you're shit, I wish you'd just go now. And I thought, that's, you know. <laughs> and your debut? <laughs> yeah, that, for my home fans, that's the opposition. <laughs> yeah. Why did they say that on your debut? Like, did they, they just not like the look here? Yeah, obviously, John was there, and John was a hero, a local hero, to be fair. Lovely fella, John Forrest, brilliant fella. He was always brilliant to me. But, you know, when you go and you're placing somebody there, you know, the first ball of course, gonna, he went, I'll oh, just go with you, you shit. Just go. <laughs> so it was just God. one of them where you just, you just got to get on with it. Luckily, um, a fella called Wilf McGuinness, in charge of Man United for a bit, great fella. And he, he used to take me in the afternoons, just me and him. Uh, and we did goalkeeping on our own, which is, I think I've been lucky in my career because everybody's always helped me. I've always been lucky that I've had somebody slightly older who's slightly been around a bit more who's given me good advice. And, you know, when they do give you good advice, you've got you've to gotta still sift through it and see if it's the right advice for you because, I don't know, my, my position, everybody thinks it's the same for goalkeepers, whatever training you do. Well, if... If I'm six foot four and the next goalie to me is, is five foot 11, we're going to have different problems. But people just blanket them all together. So you just got to work on your own problems and what you are and basically be a chameleon. So you don't show anything to anybody. Does that, when you're training on your own, like, you know, as a goalkeeper, do you feel like a separate from the squad or do you still feel bonded within the squad in that way? Well, depends who they are, really, doesn't it? <laughs> and, how good, and how good the team is. Because sometimes if the team's playing absolutely rubbish, then it's nice to go off and have your own bit. But but again, you know, if you look at it, I think each individual player should have their own bit where they go off and do their own thing and then come back together. You know, goalkeeping's a specialised area, but so is a fullback. So So all the positions are specialised, really. So you, so you need your bits of individuality and the individual training to then bring you back in because let's be honest, if you know, you've got your individual talent and, and he's got his individual talent. Imagine if you never did anything with them individual talents, just worked as a pair, it wouldn't be the same. So you 
you have to hone your craft and it takes a long time you know so feeling apart i think sometimes is quite good because you keep that respect and you keep a little bit of distance because mm. when you order people about which is what you have to do then there's still that little bit of respect there, uh, yeah. because you you have that little gap and i, I think sometimes that works well certainly worked for me or maybe they just thought I was a grumpy kid and they just do what I said anyway. So it, it, <laughs> it depends. But but like I say, it's all about knowing who you're with and knowing your people. Look, I was as much part of that team as anybody else. Maybe I didn't do the same things as them all the time, but I don't think it matters because our end goal was the same thing. You know, yeah. you go off and do your own jobs between you, but you come back and you try and make this successful. That's all we did, really. You're, yeah. you're player of the year first year you were at Barry, weren't you? And then... Everton come in, that must have been an unbelievable... How did you find out? Uh, in the paper. In the paper? <laughs> really? Yeah, I, I read the paper. when I, I was living in Berry, obviously, and I went, I went back home to see my dad and my mum, and I picked up the Sunday People, which is always a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> and then it said, like, so-and-so, so-and-so made a bid. So I went back to the club on Monday, and I said, look, you know, is this true? because I think there was a couple of other clubs as well, Newcastle and somebody else. And he said, look, Everton have bid for you, but also we have to give £6,000 to Winsford United, the club you came from, and we don't really want to do this. So the transfer might be off. I had to wait a couple of weeks, uh, sort of days before they actually decided. Then, because I wasn't driving at the time, um, the manager had to drive me into Liverpool. And when I drove into Liverpool, it was magnificent because the whole place was on fire. Wow! So when I walked in, I thought, "Look at this! I wonder if we do this for every player." <laughs> <laughs> it was. It's probably. I mean, I've been to Liverpool before as, as a young kid. In all fairness, but when you when you're going into that and then you see the club, it is it's totally different. And when I met Howard, he's. I disappointed him from the start by saying I didn't drink, I think. So, but I, I, he got used to it in the end. What was, <laughs> what was that like when, because obviously you're, you're teetotal in a time when footballers drank a lot and a, a club which was quite, you know, had quite a drinking culture. What was that like well, to. You know, beer in them days was sports psychologists, liquid form. Yeah. Yeah. That, because that was the way people got their release. No, you know, we didn't have sport. If you said somebody a sports psychologist, you'd go, yo, what does he do? He's got a suit and he sweats a lot. Right, great. What's he going to teach us about kicking a ball? Nothing. <laughs> so, you know, we had a we had a fellow come in as a nutritionist and he said, right, we're going to do this, this. And I said, well, I don't like all that shit. I just like bacon and egg and stuff like that. He went, oh, you just carry on. He's earned his money. And that was, yeah, that's, that's it. You know, when we I played for Wales, we had a, Bobby Gould brought a sports psychologist in to see us. And then he stood in front of us and I looked at his armpits and I thought, whoa, pale blue shirt and you're chucking up on the armpits. You ain't going to do anything for us because you can't control your own nerves. Yeah, so I thought, no, no, ain't going to be for me, mate. So I do think, you know, the drinking thing was play to death because when players drink, you know, they, they relax them or did whatever they got to do. Come Monday or... Even Sunday, they would they would be out running. On Monday, they'd do a little bit extra. So while they, while they say it was a drinking culture, they still went and did a bit extras because we had some really good players who Howard treated as well, basically who trusted him as men, and they repaid him without without faith. Really, they, if they needed to do a bit extra, they'd do it. And and I think that's a good. 
a, a nice thing to have the honesty and the trust between you to actually be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, what was Howard Kendall like when you first met him? Because obviously he's a legend as a player at the club. And Everton at that point, they weren't obviously, you know, they were at the start of that journey, which would go on to, you know, league titles and cup winners' cup and stuff. But was he an imposing man? What was he like? He was a nice fellow. Look, I'm not one for names or, or reputations and shit like that, to be fair. I go in there and I meet him. I either like him or I don't like him. And if I don't, well, it's tough shit because I've signed for a long time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, but he was he was great with me, don't you know I mean? He was took a chance on me, which you know, which I was always grateful for. He took a chance on me. I mean, I've met him before in a pub, funny enough, called the Neville, where he was doing his scouting, and he was he was good as gold. Do you know what I mean? So going there, you don't for me, for me because I was still young. I was still pretty naive, so I didn't go with oh, you know, it's a big club, blah blah blah. I'm gonna really sort of be scared to death of it. I had the same thing. I knew I had my safety net. My safety net was well. I played at Betty and I did okay. I can go back there if I mess this up, and, and that's basically it was my attitude to anything. Really, is it, if I've got a safety net, which is where I've been, because I know I can do that. I'll have a go at it, and if I don't do it, well, I've tried it, uh, and I can always go back to doing what I was doing before. So if I had to, I'd go. I'd have gone right back to doing the bins if I had to, because it didn't really matter because I knew I could do something else apart from football. And you know, I'd been in the real world really where. You know, if somebody tells you to run around, you know, the, the pitch 10 times, well, great. I didn't have to get up at 4 o'clock to run around the pitch 10 times. No. <laughs> I have, and I didn't have a doctor to bite my ass either. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good outlook. So those first few early years at Everton, you were in and out of the team. I wondered, how did you cope with being the substitute goalkeeper on occasion? How, what was your mentality like when you you seeing someone else get your spot? Well... Again, being stupid and being naive, I thought, when I signed, I thought, right, I'll give it till Christmas if not on the team then. I'll just go away somewhere else and do something else. Um, <laughs> I, lo- you've got a comp- I love your attitude, Neville. Yeah. I, it, genuinely, it is the opposite to the way I approach life, which is t- worrying so much about everything and worrying about stuff disappearing. Well, I can only control what I can control. What's outside my control, I can't do anything about yeah. So all I've got to do is worry about what I can do. The rest of it will take care of itself because that's just what's going to happen. Yeah. And, and I, do you know what? I heard I heard Stephen Fry the other day, um, I think it was Old Cliff, but he was saying about animals. And he said, an animal, say, take a bear. A bear don't worry about anything else apart from being a bear. <laughs> it don't bother. The rest of the world is going round and round and round, and the bear don't give a shit. He just does what he's got to do. And I think that is the best way to go. And when you think about it, everybody tries to be something else and try something, you know, and try and be this and that. We're really, we should concentrate on just being us. Yeah. Because we were put on the planet as us. Bears were put on the planet as bears. Bears don't suddenly try and become a fish, do they? <laughs> That's probably a really good way of looking at things. And when people say, well, you know, you're not this and you're not well, I don't give a shit, really, do I? I don't care what you think I should be. I am me, and if you don't like me, who cares? Move on and do what i got to do because you don't count. But do you know, like, I think people might listen to this and think that you're really carefree, but I was reading that um, you would be looking at hundreds of different things where you could gain an edge in your own performance. You were constantly looking at things, trying to always get that 1%. So it's not that you're completely carefree. You're super. It seems like you're super diligent about being a great goalkeeper. You tried lots of different things. 
Is, would that be fair? Right, it, it, here's another thing. If you're a bear, you try the best thing in the world to be a most successful bear in the world. Yeah. Because that's how you survive. And, and that's all I did. If I'm going to go and do something, if I'm going to be me and I want to play football, say when I want to be goalkeeper, then what's the point of me going to work to be second rate? Uh, if I'm going to go and do it, let's be let's be serious about it. And I've got, a, I think I've got, a, well, I've got a right and I've got a drive to be the best that I possibly can be. Because what's the other, what's the point of doing it? That's where the pressure is. The pressure is not walking into the stadium and being surrounded by people. The pressure is is to be the best you can be, and forget about everybody else. Because if you can't concentrate on yourself, it don't matter what everybody else is doing. It's it's your career. And you live and die by your decisions. But if you can be the best you can be, then I, I think you owe it to yourself to be that. And uh, yeah, I look, look, I looked at golfers because golfers spend hours and hours concentrating. And I'm thinking, well, you know, when they say about goalkeeping, concentrate for 90 minutes, these fellas concentrate five hours going around. What, how do they do their concentration? So I did my little things where I come up with like traffic lights. So if the ball was sort of down that end, it was, you know, a green. You know, by the halfway line, it was an amber. When when it got over the halfway line, I was on red. So I, I learned to take my concentration up and down. Mm. So I didn't over-concentrate. I didn't under-concentrate. I just kept a decent level of concentration where I was ready, but I was a relaxed ready. Yeah. And when you see some of them now, they're ready, but they're an uptight ready. So therefore, they make mistakes Yeah. because they've over-concentrated. And, and it, it's a really hard thing to get right. And I think, you know, when I look at it now in modern football, I think most of the goalkeepers have settled for being okay because not many of them have improved. They've been at a level now for a while and they haven't got any better. And I, and I think sometimes, you know, if you want to use the excuse, the ball moves, well, fantastic. It only moves on a match day, does it? What about the rest of the week to get used to it? You know, it's, not, it's like picking up a new car. Well, it doesn't do what the old one did. No, great, get away. So why don't you go and, tr- go and try it and then work out what the problems are? And I think that's one of the things is that in my day, we had people who didn't tell us to come in, who didn't tell us that, you know, we, we, we could do a little bit extra. We always wanted to do extra, always. And these days, you've got a number of people telling you, right, you've got to eat this, you've got to go to bed that time, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. You've played too many games. You can't possibly do that. You're tired. And we're, what we tend to give our footballers and our sport, well, most of our sportsmen now is, is, is negative stuff. Mm. So if you tell somebody you can't play three games a month, you ain't going to play three games a month. And that's just the way it is because they get used to a thing, well, I can't possibly do that. Okay, so what happens when you have to play a fourth game? He's on the loser already. So really, sport should be about being positive and saying, yeah, you can do this. Imagine if we, us three went to the SAS and went, well, we want, we want Wednesday off, mate. <laughs> <laughs> It ain't going to happen. They wouldn't be up for and it. All, no, all the top people go the extra mile. And if you've got people telling you that you can't go the extra mile, you're never going to get to where you want to get to. And, you know, I, I had, luckily I had a manager who just let me do whatever I wanted to do, really, as long as I did the right on the pitch. So I, I think you have to put your time and effort into it and you have to look and you have to learn and you have to push your body beyond what it goes. And you can only do that with your mind because none of you sat there now could move a muscle without your brain telling you to did you know at the time like so you're able to look back and kind of see that that's kind of how it was when you're a young goalie at everton 
are you working these things out for yourself? Are you working? Do you know what I mean? Did you have the same kind of understanding of it at that time? No, I don't think anybody does. I think you learn by experience. You know, when I, if I made a few mistakes on the bounce, I'd be going, well, why did I do that? Hmm. And if I couldn't come up with the answer, I was dead worried. Yeah. Because usually you know the answer. And when I speak to young goalies now, or I speak to any goalies, you go like, why did you make that mistake? He goes, I don't know. I'm going, got no chance, mate. Because you, you have to be your own coach as well. And it's, you know, it's great having technology around the ground. It's great having cameras. But if you can't work it out yourself, you've had it because I've never seen an iPad in goal yet. <laughs> <laughs> one day, Nev, one uh, day. One day, um, one day may, maybe, but I've, I've never seen, to, you know, and even when you make a mistake on a Saturday, why would the first thing you do on a Monday morning is somebody bring you in and go, look, this is what you did? That's a double negative. Mm, yeah. So you've already given him a double, double negative, saying, well, oh, you made this mistake. Well, he's had from Saturday till Monday morning. He knows in his head, if you say, do you know what I'm Saturday? He goes, yeah, well, fine, that's fine, let's move on. As long as he doesn't do it the next week and the next week, it's just about picking up the mistakes and moving on. There's something I've always wondered about being a goalie. So you're in, the, in and out of the Everton team, you go on loan to Port Vale and stuff in that early time. Because you always see goalies interviewed and they would, would deny that this is the case. But... When you're this, the reserve goalie, what are you hoping... I can see you trying try to frame that really, really <laughs> well. <laughs> you know what I'm going to ask, Nev. How, do you want them... No, I don't. Do you want them... To get injured? No, or just to make a mistake or just to do something that would mean that you get in the team? No, and the reason is, is because if I'm not better than him, he deserves to be played. And that was just that was the way I worked on my thing, is if he's better than me, he'll get in the team. Yeah. If I'm better than me, I'll stay in the team. And every time I went into trading and I looked at the other goalies, I'd go, right, okay. Well, I'm in a team now. So, yeah, they could sort of hate me. They could sort of respect me. But they've got to be better than me. And I worked on, right, well, I'm going to make sure I'm better than them. And I could use them to drive me on to be better. Because every time I walked into training ground, I thought, right, maybe you don't feel like this today. But him down the road, who wants to be better than me, is. And he's doing it. So, shit, I better get my gap together here and go on and do it properly. I love your outlook, so positive. I, I wanted to ask you about, you're probably one of the most politically outspoken footballers. And actually, there was a period at Everton where you had all of the most politically outspoken footballers together in one dressing room at various points. Gary Lineker, Peter Reid, uh, Pat Nevin. Was there much political chat in that dressing room? Well, no. You've got a whole cabinet there of fantastic <laughs> political minds. Well, Gary Lineker, really, he was in the dressing room, but he spent more time in the bath because he had his bad toe. <laughs> And his bad tone went that. Played, played Saturday, rest on Sunday, maybe a light jog or a bath on Monday. Tuesday, he might have a little jog. Wednesday, we had off. Thursday, he, he made train on a Thursday. Friday, he had a bath. Saturday, he scored a trick. <laughs> Incredible fella. It was a very politicised time because in Liverpool at the time, you know, it was kind of the place to be for left-wing politics. And yeah, politics. I, I, I didn't know Derek Hatton was coming into the dressing room. So what was Derek Hatton like when he came into the dressing room? Uh, Ken Dodd on speed, probably. Never <laughs> <laughs> heard that. Good sense of humour. Also, I think he was one of them fellows that you could mm. take the piss out of. And he was just lively. But you needed somebody like him because I don't think a lot of other people would have stuck up to Thatcher. You needed somebody with his drive and his 
you know, a lot of people didn't like him and they still don't like him. The Labour Party don't even like him half the time. But he did a great job for Liverpool at times. And and I think, you know, with the poll tax and things like that, they, they stuck together. And it is what makes a city special because, you know, you, while the Reds and the Blues don't obviously get on, when there's an outside person come to, you know, have a go at the city, they don't have to stick together. And I, and I think that's one of the best things about the city. You know, it don't happen in London, it don't happen in Birmingham, it don't happen anywhere else. But it happens in, in, in Merseyside. You know, Manchester now, they've got a scouser in charge. Look as if they're trying to do a bit of that as well. It was a city that was divided between two colours, but brought together under under red for Labour, really, at, at times. And it was it was great going up. But you, you like to say, your main job to keep everybody happy was due on a Saturday because, let's be honest, there was a lot of hassle in them days, a lot of turbulence in the city. Um, one of the places that you can get it out is when you go to football and you can tell everybody how bad they're playing. <laughs> <laughs> but but they didn't have much excuse in the 80s because you won a whole host of trophies. But I wanted to ask you, there's something you mentioned in the book about not really enjoying trophy celebrations. You, you never, When you won a trophy, you didn't seem to enjoy the celebrations that came with it. Oh, it's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? Here's a trophy. Well, look, here's a trophy, right? Go walk around the pitch. We've won it now. What? what? I didn't get the walk around the pitch shit, to be fair. It's like a moment going like everyone going, yeah, thank you, like how great you are. I think that would be the pinnacle of a footballer's existence would be a trophy parade. If I'm honest, I found it quite embarrassing because I looked at it this way. I expected to win. And if we didn't have won, I didn't want to be there. We played some Zenith Data Trophy or some of one of them games and we lost it. And I, and I didn't go for the medal and I got absolutely slaughtered by Howard. For showing lack of respect, but I thought, well, shit, I don't want to go up there because we lost. Why would I want to go and get, you know? But so it is. So I learned some off him then. But but in the main, look, you win a trophy, then it's done, isn't it? You know, how often can you celebrate? If if they took the trophy around on a truck and that, great. I don't I don't really that that ain't bothered as soon as you finish. Get in, have a cup of tea and go all mad. That'll do me. <laughs> so when the first thing you won, first you won the FA Cup in 1984 at Everton. Was the cup final a big thing for you? Or was that, were you just like, just interested in the game there? Or did that feel like a big event you wanted to be part of? Well, it's a big event. Look, you want to play in all the games. I just don't like this, this the other shit that goes on around it. What did you think of um, doing the cup final song? Well, luckily I didn't go, did I? <laughs> But you missed out on Wogan. Well, I couldn't be asked getting on there because it's a, it's a journey you don't have to make, can it, really? <laughs> <laughs> so, but, no, look, when you, when you go to an FA Cup band, it's your first one. It's it's brilliant. And while everybody, you know, you look out the window and there's flags and there's, there's tons of people going up the Wembley Way. At the end of the day, but you've got to focus on your job. And your job your job is is to win the trophy and do it with for them. Mm. You know, it's it's no good having all that. Oh, you're great, brilliant, yeah, yeah, I love you. And at twenty to five, they go turn around and go, you shit, you never won it. So you wanna you wanna make sure that you you enjoy the day, but at the end of the day, you're there to win the trophy, and you're there, you're there. That's what you're supposed to be doing. So all the other stuff, you know, the suits and the you know, the TV interviews and all that, that's just a distraction from the main thing. So you need to go and focus on what's important. You know, and, and that, that is really winning the game. And if you don't do that, then what's the point of all the other stuff around it? It's, it's pretty pointless. And, you know, I've been in both when you've won and lost and losing shit. Winning's great because you can just go <laughs> in and nobody can say anything to you. At all. And that, but, that's brilliant. But, like, it seems like your mindset is like, it, 
It doesn't matter too much if you win or lose. If you get the trophy or, or you lose, you're in bed by half ten in both scenarios. Losing matters. Yeah? Losing matters a great deal. I expect to win. Yeah. I don't understand somebody who go and go, well, you know, we might win this, might not. No, no, let's, we're going to win and that's it. You know, uh, however we do it, we'll, we'll win. And if we don't, somebody's going to have to out-battle us and out-play us and, and have a better character than us. Uh, and there wasn't that many teams that could do that. So we, we knew, you know, if people come and kick us off the park, we could kick them back. If they want to play us, we can play. If they, you know, if they want to sort of intimidate us, they couldn't intimidate us because we, we were quite good at that as well. So we had, <laughs> we had a combination of, of a team that we could do whatever it took to win a game. Now, sometimes it got quite nasty and sometimes it was quite nice and jolly. But in the main, it was it was physical, it was hard, and it was it was about winning winning the right to play the game in the first place, which is in the first 20 minutes, there would be some stuff going on that, and then once the game settles down, then we can get on with the proper game. Both teams come at, at each other, kick shit out of each other for the first bit, and then we go, right, let's have a game now. Because either we've intimidated you, you've intimidated us, or we can't intimidate each other, so let's just play football. Did that mentality you had for Everton, did that carry over into the Welsh setup? Was there a real difference in mentality between Wales and Everton? Not not really. It just I think Wales had a real problem was that we we still got it now in, in lots of ways, is that Wales thinks it's a small place. Well, all the other small places have got to World Cups and the other small places have got to Euros. You know, luckily they have now, but when when we were playing it was like you know, we took a lad who's now coach of Sheffield United, a lad called Alan Nil. And we played out in Holland. And he marked Van Basten out the game. And we scored, uh, sorry, they scored in the last few minutes because we had a lad called Dave Phillips who was in the wall but was supposed to be marking Rude Hullet at the same time because we messed up on a on some uh, set-piece stuff. And he scored with a rebound. But Alan Nil marked Van Basten out the game. Never played again. Never seen him. <laughs> but you know, but he, he came from the fourth division, right, which is... A massive jump. And he had, from Saturday night when he got to the hotel, to Wednesday night to turn into a world-class player. And you, you don't realise that how big a jump it can be. Because obviously, you know, mm. when, when, in the old fourth division, the centre-half would get it, and he'd just launch it up the field. And if you try and play out from the back, then he ain't going to be comfortable doing that. So they've got, to, they've got to take away, and they've got to strip themselves down to actually doing something completely different. And and they were the sort of players that I loved to play with because the way they did it was brilliant. You know, if you're regularly playing in the first division of the, or, you know, the Premier League, then the step-up's not too bad because you're playing against basically the same players you play against anyway. And then for the ones that come from lower down, it's a massive step. And yet we always praise the people like, you know, sort of we had Russian people like that who were brilliant. But this fellow's come out of the fourth division. No one's ever heard of him. He's Mark Van Basten out of the name. And he's going, see you later. <laughs> so, so we had a fellow called Jeff Hopkins who played for Fulham. And believe it or not, we played Brazil in a friendly. And he came to the ground after having a pie in a pan. And coming to dress him, he said, all the best, lads. And Mike, Mike England, who was manager, said, oh, Jeff, have you got your boots? And he went, yeah. Then my car. He went, oh, come get them. We haven't got enough subs. We, we need <laughs> and he, he actually... Come in, got changed, was on the bench. After 20 minutes, our centre-half got injured. Jeff, come on. Did okay. We, we, we drew. And after the game, the manager said to him, Jeff, do you know what you need to do? Is you need to put a ball on the end of a rope and practice your heading because you weren't very good today. 
And I'm thinking, this fella's just come from the pub, basically. He's got to. <laughs> you stuck him in against Brazil, and he's done brilliant. <laughs> what was the sound like? Uh, what, uh, FAW and stuff compared to... Compared to like Everton, who are the best, you know, one of the best two clubs in Europe, really, at that point. Well, it's, it's always difficult. Look, you know, we, we went to Northern Ireland and we, we played Northern Ireland for Wales and, and we trained in rugby goals, <laughs> right? Which is, which is great if you do the attacking. Yeah, but when we did defending set pieces and then, and then said, right, who, who do you want the wall? So we put the wall up and they just kept chipping the ball in the top corner. <laughs> and the lads were going, look, to the manager, look, Mike, he's not trying a leg here. And he's going, oh, come on, you've got to try me. Oh, I'm not Superman. I can't get in the top four of the rugby goals, can I? <laughs> it was different because everywhere we went with the Welsh FA, we travelled, economy, we played the game, and then we usually we left about four o'clock in the morning. So nobody used to go to bed. So it was, it's pointless going to bed because you, you'd you'd finish your meal at half 11, 11, you know, 12 o'clock, and then we'd we'll say, right, what are we doing? Well, let's just go out then. And you go out, come back, pick your bag up and get straight on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, you said like flying economy all over the world, but you had some absolute superstars in that Welsh side you played with, along with yourself. There was Ian Rush, Mark Hughes, Kevin Ratcliffe. How did those superstars take to that kind of level of professionalism? Well, it is what it is, isn't it? It's your country at the end of the day, so it don't matter. It, you know, if you don't get there at three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, you have kits that look to like come out the 70s. So you have already got the sort of got there early and then they've got their kit. Oh, that's, that's just the way it was. Do you know what I mean? We, we played in Iceland and we got beat in Iceland 1-0. And he, when we come coming after the game, it was a terrible game, and the manager went, I suppose you're all going out tonight, are you? Hey, after that, it's disgraceful. And one of us said, well, I think it was Russia. He said, well, listen, Mike, you organised the club, didn't you? And he went, oh, yeah, I suppose you did, really. <laughs> Oh, that's just so that, that was just that was just a Welsh FA thing because that's just what it was. It was great in a way, but we did it until really Sparky came in as manager or, or Gouldie to be fair, Bobby Gould. Then we weren't going, we weren't going to have anything else apart from just go the cheapest times and and you know we went to, we played Japan once with Teddy Olaf and Brooks Reeves, and we got to Japan and they'd done the wrong boss for us. So we had half the players could go and they have half to stay behind and you know. <laughs> it, it was always like that. Do you know what summer always happened? We're trying to I mean, I don't know whether you've ever been to the Faroe Islands. No. Well when no. you when, when you fly in, it's between these two like sort of big mountains, so you go between them. And we tried three times in the fog and then the pilot went, Well, I don't think we'll bother this next time. It's getting a bit dodgy. So we went back to Denmark. And then we we flew again from Denmark. It's just, you know, <laughs> yeah, wow. just it was just one thing after another. Do you know what I mean? It was just. And you had some massive highs as well. You were in the team in '91 when Wales beat West Germany at Cardiff Arms Park. Would you say that was the highlight of your international career? Yeah, look, I, I think look, we had a good team. We probably just didn't have a, a midfield player. You know, we didn't have a Gaza or a Sunas or, or a Hadji or somebody like that. If we had a midfield player who could pass them, we'd have been great. You know, our, basically our tactics was Barry Owen would smash their best player, we defended and Russia would score. <laughs> it's a good tactic. It's a great tactic, to be fair, but at the end of the day, you know, it did change a little bit when, when obviously Giggsy came into the squad, but, but that was our main tactic, really. Barry, he's their best player. Don't let him play however you can do it. <laughs> that was it. The, but you yeah. very nearly qualified for Mexico 86, very nearly qualified for Euro 88, very nearly qualified for USA 94. 
having spoken to you, I, I'm going to guess the answer to this is no. But does that feel like a regret, like something you, you feel gutted about? I'm not gutted, to be fair. I don't think we were good enough to get there. Because, you know, it's a league. And if you come in the top two of your league, you, you get through. We we weren't good enough to get in the top two. Or, you know, we, we didn't qualify, so that makes us not good enough. It's a bit of a bugbear. Yeah. Um, when you look at some of the other countries and the way some of the voting goes, you know, that there's somebody somewhere else who's, who gets to the World Cup because of the way they're playing or, you know, Australia playing, what, four of the countries that nobody's ever heard of or something like that. But <laughs> it, it, it does make it a little bit different. But, again, it, I don't think we deserve to qualify it because we, we weren't good enough. We had too many players. Like say we had, we had Dean Saunders, Sparky, Ian Rush, and we couldn't fit them three up front because we, we so Sparky played in midfield and, and Sparky got a book in every game because Sparky liked the tackle. So Sparky was always on a yellow card from like 10 minutes into the game. Barry <laughs> was always on a yellow card 10 minutes into the game. So it was, it was, it was extremely difficult. And, you know, obviously we had Gary Speed come in and we had probably a lot of forward thinking players and not enough people who could supply the ball to them. Yeah. You, you've been quite complimentary about Bobby Gould. And I guess Bobby Gould doesn't have the best reputation as Wales manager, but you, do you, did you rate him? He made some positive changes. Mainly was him resigning was a good one. Um, <laughs> in the main, I think his structure was good. He brought in structure and he basically bluffed the Welsh FA by saying, look, I can get Sky involved and all, all this shit. And it was like, he was the one that brought the psychologist in, you know, he brought a psychologist in and we just said, we just looked at him, nah, he can't do it. And he, But, you know, we'd always do stuff like, you know, we tried to wrestle with John Artson and John Artson didn't want anything to do with him and then the lads would go, yeah, go and wrestle with him. So I think he wrestled with him and cracked his rib, you know. And, <laughs> and then he, he sort of, we played Switzerland away and he said, right, no one going out, everyone come back to this room and he had all bottles of beer everywhere. And he said, right, okay, if you were a colour today, you know, if you were green, and that was great, what would you be? And Robbie Savage just went, I'm platinum, great, see you later. I walked out. <laughs> we played Holland away. We got beat 7-1. And in the middle of the game, you know, the Dutch were all there in their orange and all the flags and everything, and someone threw an orange on his head. And he turned around to the secretary and said, right, throw him, get him thrown out. He said, which one? He went, the one in the orange. <laughs> <laughs> But he, he was, you know, his best one ever for Gouldie was he knew because the manager told him that, manager of the hotel had told him that, two of the lads had had girls in the room like before we played Holland. So he said, right, come down, we'll, we'll have a meeting in the morning. And I was supposed to be assistant manager then or coach or whatever he decided to call me. So he said, I said, right, so you know who they are? He went, yeah, I know who they are. He said, there's two of them. And I said, right, okay. So he brought everybody in. He said, right, anybody who hasn't had a girl in their room can leave. The rest of you stay behind. So they all got up and left. And it was me and him. I said, it must have been us and Bob, must not it? <laughs> <laughs> One thing I heard that Bobby Gould did, and I've heard that you did this, was that Bobby Gould famously designed a Welsh kit. And I heard that you got involved with kit. You thought helping design kit could give you that 1% of an edge. Is that right? Did you get involved with kits a little bit? I don't know what kit Bob, Bobby Gould designed. Which kit was that? Because I didn't hear that. If, if he designed a kit, it would have had his face on it. So I don't think he did. <laughs> He subbed you at half-time in a game, didn't he? Yeah, he finished my career, to be fair, Bob. I mean, look, I get, I get all right when he's all right. But we, we played in Turkey, and coming off at half-time, I think we were 4-1 down. He went, oh, 
I said, yeah, we've got some problems here. He went, yeah, it's you. You're coming off. I went, oh, cheers. <laughs> but, what about kit- that, that was the end of it. And did you get involved with kit design? Is that right? Did you have a look at that? No, I looked. I looked. I wanted a black shirt at Everton. And the reason I wanted a black shirt at Everton is because if you're a striker and you're coming through and then you look up and you see some butterfly, beautifully coloured butterfly or peacock stood in the goal, you know exactly where he is. But if you, if you look and it's quite dark and, you know, winter's night, you know, getting on, three o'clock, the lights are on, the crowd are all there, it's quite hard to see black. So I wanted him to have another couple of seconds looking for me. Uh... That's why I wanted a black shirt, because he, need, he needs another look. And if he needs another look, that means he's got to get his head up twice. That means a couple of seconds. Two things I can move, and then somebody can catch him. So for me, it was about making him work a little bit harder to do what he's supposed to do. Interesting. Do you think it worked? Do you think like do you think more that should be a thing across the board? Like, I mean, goalkeeper kits in the nineties, in the second half of your career, they kind of got more and more colourful as it went along, didn't they? Yeah, there's, there's two schools of thought for me. There's there's one. Because you're six foot four, you want to then appear to eight foot because, you know, you have the bright colours so it makes you look bigger. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, but that's, you know, do, do you want to be looking for an elephant or do you want to be looking for a mouse? If I'm a striker, well, an elephant because it's easy to see. For me, it was always the darker the better. Why should, why should I give somebody an edge on me that doesn't deserve it? Yeah, yeah. Another another edge I've heard you you mentioned that in, in the book is that if your opposition gave if your defense gave away a penalty, you would go into this mindset of just trying to get in the striker's head by wasting as much time kicking the ball up the field. Is that right? Did it work? Yeah, if the ball yeah if the ball come in my hands, I just boot it as far as I go. And even if he was going to try and book, he said, "Well, I didn't hear you whistle, did I?" And then I'd walk as far as I could away from the goal and walk back. Because at the end of the day, the referee is always going to be arguing with the players. Yeah. Right. So they distracted him. You can walk off as far as you want. They've got to call you back at some stage, haven't they? Because you can get to the corner flag sometimes. And if you can walk as far away as you can, I'll say to you in the R box, and you go, oh, sorry, then you just go walk back and take your time. Because all you're doing is, is giving that fella time to make up his mind. Some people are really instinctive, where they can just put the ball down and smash it. But a lot of the penalty takers will, will think about what they're doing. So the longer you give them to think, the better it is. If you took somebody like Ross Barkley, Ross Barkley was, I think, is a really instinctive player. Give him a couple of minutes, he struggles. Give him five seconds, he's great. So you would always let people on, you know, we'd always do a homework, right? What is he type of player? Is he is instinctive? Is he not instinctive? Is he, is he a thinker? And they're the type of players, the ones that are instinctive, you want, you want to have more time on the ball because they like to be get rid of it within five seconds. Any, any, any time longer than you've had it because he's made his mind up 17,000 times and he's lost the ball. If he's a thinker, then you don't want him to have any time of ball because he's, he's good. Moving into the 90s with Everton, one of the kind of iconic things, uh, moments, was uh, half-time first day of the season against Leeds when you decide to just stay out on the pitch. Was that just to get your own... You were 2-0 you down and you just decided to get your head together? Yeah, we're 2-0 down. I just went... I, I did go actually go in. Oh, did you? I did go into change. Yeah, I did go into change room. It was all just shouting and all that stuff. And I thought, well, there's no point really, is it? I might as well just be outside. I'd done it before at Wimbledon mm. uh, when he played at Plough Lane. But you know what it was like at Plough Lane. There was nobody ever there, so nobody bothered. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so you were in the dressing room, they're all shouting, and you were just like, I can't be bothered with this. So you just went and sat on the pitch? Yeah. 
I've just got to get my head straight because I, can, I, I want to do better second half. And then I went and sat by the post and then some fella come pat me on the head and I looked up and I thought, ah, it's you, Jimmy. He, he just found my bathroom, the fella. <laughs> but the, the manager didn't know because um, I got a phone call at seven o'clock at night and said, you know, what are you doing, you idiot? A word to that effect. And I said, well, I didn't clear my head. You know, I've got to be called. No, no, you're suspended from the club for two weeks. And I thought, well, fair enough. So then... About 10 o'clock, he phoned back and said, look, you know, I've been thinking, why did you do that? And I said, well, I've told you why I did it. And he went, I used to spend it for two weeks. So I thought, right, okay, I've been suspended for two weeks. So I, I phoned my agent and said, look, you suspended me for two weeks. Phone him up and ask him if I'm going holiday, which I don't think was the smartest move, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> he went, no, no, he's not going. He said, right, I want to see you Monday morning. So I came in on Monday morning. I said, look, this is why I did it. He said, right, I'm finding you two week wages. And I played on a Tuesday. Around around this time, you, Alec, the rumour is Alex Ferguson around this time is looking for a new goalkeeper for Man United and it's you and Peter Schmeichel in like finding out for who's going to get that spot. And Alex Ferguson and you and you had a call and it all went wrong on the call. That's that's the urban myth. Is there any truth to that? No, he did phone me up, but I thought it was one of the lads messed about, so I told him fuck off. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Yeah, he phoned me up. He said, oh, it's Alex Ferguson because he wasn't a sir by then. I said, fuck off, Andy, or to whoever it was. I said, fuck off, and just put the phone down. And then he ran back five minutes later. <laughs> and what was he like on the phone, second phone call? No, oh, fine. He was, was good to call. But Les Seeley told me that it was because I sat on the post that he, would, he wouldn't assign me. That's Les Seeley's view. It's it's one of them things, isn't it? It's just you've got to do what you've got to do, and you've got to say what you've got to say, and then, look, it don't really matter, does it? Because I was happy where I was, and... Goodison was my home, and it's it's always going to be my home. And so when you walk into somewhere, you know if it's the right place for you, and it's always been the right place. And whenever I whenever I left Everton, it was never the right place to be. It was never my home. Yeah, yeah. When you then Howard Kendall comes back, and it's quite an interesting situation when a manager returns. The third time he come back, I don't think it was the best fit for the club. In all fairness, but for all for Howard, I, I think. Because the club had moved a different way than Howard had moved, and the players had changed. When Howard first came to Everton, when I first came to Everton, he was miles ahead. You know what they say about Arsene Wenger and all that stuff about with the balls and stuff. He was miles ahead of anybody. And then you know he went off and he did his other stuff with other clubs. You know he went to Bilbao and was quite successful at Bilbao. And then when he came back the second time, it was okay. But then the third time he came back, obviously it was. I think things were different. I think he found it harder. Because they weren't his type of players, you know, he didn't have time to build. And when really, you know, I left when he was still manager. You know, and when you've had a manager who I was having injections in my back to play at the time, and we played, we played at Leeds, and he pulled me, he sort of phoned me up at twelve o'clock on a Saturday dinner time, and he said, "I'll oh, come to my room." And when I got there, he was, he just said, "Look, I'm not playing here today." He said, "I can't tell you why. It's just an instinct, and I've got to go with it." And I said, "Well." Why anyone? I can't tell you. He said, you know, I love you. Blah blah, whatever. And I said, well, okay, if that's your decision. And obviously, I still had to have the injection to play. Thomas Mara went and played and did exceptionally well. And then the Monday, he pulled me on the money. Listen, you don't have to come train anymore. You don't have to come to the club anymore. And I went, well, I want to come to the club. He said, well, you can't train with the first team. You can't train with the reserves, and you can't train with the kids. And I went, right. He said, so you know, you don't have to come in if you don't want to. I think I had about six months left on my contract. 
And I said, yeah, but I still want to play because he offered me the goalkeeping role. And I went, well, I don't want to do that. You know, goalkeeping coach. So I still want to play it. And he went, no, no, I'm not, not having that. And then and that really was the end of my career then. And then I thought about it after. I thought, well, that's pretty shit, really. But it's good in a way because he he could have been all sentimental and, and you know, oh, he can play to the end of the season and all that stuff. But really, if he was going to make it caught, I suppose he should have done it there and then like he did. And, you know, we could, we could move on, really. Except I was stubborn. I went in training with the groundsman. And I went in every day just to annoy him until I found another club. <laughs> <laughs> with the, like, so you've had so many good times with Howard Kendall. Like, you won the league twice. You won the Cup Winners' Cup. One thing about the Cup Winners' Cup is, like, now, obviously, these European competitions, they always have these big teams in the final. You beat Rapid Vienna in the final, having beaten Bayern Munich in the semi final. Did that feel like it was the wrong way around? Did yeah, you feel like well, this is going to be easy? It's rapid Vienna. No, not really. We knew that if we beat Bayern Munich, that we could beat anybody else. And Bayern Munich was, you know, we played over there with a couple of injuries. We managed to get a nil-nil. We played them back at our place. And I have to say, there's not one Everton fan that I've spoke to who wasn't at the game. So that means the crowd must have been 300 million pounds. <laughs> <laughs> So, from that point of view, the game was violent. It was competitive. It had, it had absolutely. I would swap that game for every, any game in my career, and I would give you all my medals and caps for that one game again. It was just, you know, when people say crowd make a difference, they don't make a difference really because if you're doing your job, you you know you don't really hear them. It's easy if there's ten or twenty of them, but in the main, you don't hear them because it's just a wall of noise. But but that. If we'd have played that game anywhere else in any other city, we'd have lost. That I think that that was the only time that the crowd and the, and the team was actually gelled as one, and that's what got through to the final. And then, yeah, we'd watch Rapid Vienna, and they had Hans Krankel, and basically not many other good players. So we knew if we kept him quiet, then we had a real good chance. But it was it was never going to be easy. But what I would say, it felt like an anticlimax because of the team that we did play. Another huge kind of game you played in was at the other end of the table was towards the end of your Everton career you were in the final day game against uh, Wimbledon to tr- stay in the league is it right you nearly took a penalty in that game well yeah nobody else wanted it did they <laughs> oh, what's worse can happen you miss <laughs> nobody looked as if they wanted to take it so I picked the ball up and was I was marching up and down the well I was marching towards the centre circle and Graeme Stewart got embarrassed and said well I'll take it then but, but in the main you know, it's what's the worst you can do? You either score, or you don't. And it, 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 at that stage, I never expected us to lose because um, we're a better team than them. Again, we had a, I suppose we had a dodgy manager really who got us in that position, so we shouldn't have been in that position anyway. But Mike Walker. Yeah, Mike. Well, Mike Walker. I wouldn't let him manage my my bath. Because he'd done well at Norwich, but he was a disaster at Everton, wasn't he? Yeah, Mike. Mike's a nice fella. Do you know? And I and I thought, like, you know, coming, he came from Colwyn Bay, which was when I played for Lamb, didn't know it. It was like five miles apart, so they were our arch rivals. So I mean, so I thought he'd be okay with me, in all fairness. But I, I knew he was trying to get rid of me, um, and he took me for one goalkeeping session, uh, which is basically a green cone and a red cone. So he shout right when I shout. Red, you dive to green. When I shout green, you dive to red. So we did that for about two hours and I had to turn around and say, look, Mike, could you just think of another colour? 
because this is the worst session I've ever had in my life. Funny enough, we never <laughs> talk to you again. How did you find in the 80s, like Everton, like you're riding high, winning all those trophies, and then you get to this period, early 90s, where you're fighting relegation? What happened? What changed in the mentality around the club? How did you end up like that? With Howard, it was all about a high line and pressing the ball and making things happen. With with Mike, it was roll the ball after the centre halves. Um, they'd have 10 passes. Then we bought Vinny Samways, which is a good, good little player, to be fair, Vinny. And then we'd give him the ball and he had another 30 passes. And then within them, all them passes, the opposition nicked the ball and scored loads of goals against us. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, if anybody watched him, that, they just pressed us and because we passed the ball a million times in our half, they just pinched it and scored. You know, we can beat at home 4-1 by Norwich and people like that. So it wasn't great. And to be fair, when Joe Royal came in, he just took us out on the pitch and went, look, see, there's another half to the pitch. We'll just play in that one. And to be fair, none of us had been over the halfway line for half a season anyway. So, <laughs> and did you? It was around this time you got your MBA. What was it like meeting the Queen? I'm surreal, really, because I I stood there and I thought there's Gurkhas and there's all sorts of people who've been you know wounded and done extraordinary things, and there's me just kicking the ball about or saving the ball now and again. I thought, well, okay. And then when I went in, you, you obviously got to nod your head, and she put it over your head, and then she said, well. And what do you do now? Have you retired? And I'm still playing, aren't I? <laughs> That's amazing. Conversation killer, really, wasn't it? <laughs> she didn't say, what do you think of Mike Walker? That would have been... <laughs> yeah, that would have been an hour. <laughs> and, and that was the same summer that you got your MBA, that you won the FA Cup in 95 again. But again, another one where you just, you won it and went straight home. Yeah, well, you know, if you've seen one... Scottish person dancing on a table in a kilt with nothing underneath. <laughs> there's, there's absolutely no point in staying, is <laughs> So, but for me, it was different because I knew that they were, it was, well, it was going to be my last FA Cup final ever, unless I went to another club who wanted to sort of scrape through somehow by a miracle. Um, I also knew that, you know, they wanted to move me on. So, so it was nice for me that I knew it was going to be my last and I could really enjoy it. So I wanted to do everything I wanted to do my way. Uh, and, and luckily, you know, the manager was good as gold, Joe, and I could just do what I wanted to do. And it was great for me because I really, no pressure on us. You know, everyone thought United were going to win 5-0. And um, we thought we had half a chance because we had a, a decent team and a great team spirit. So we knew that if we kept it tight, we had a chance of winning. And all the pressure was on Man United. So it was great for us. We could really relax, enjoy the day, and then go and do what we had to do. And I, I thought it was brilliant to be fair. And we really enjoyed the game and often celebrated. And, and I, I drove my Volvo on. <laughs> Do you like Joe Royal? Didn't, didn't you phone in a call into a radio phone in to defend Joe Royal at one point as well while you were playing for him? Well, I, I did some of the radio stuff. Anyway. Look, Joe was a good fella. And, you know, when Mike Walker come, there wasn't really a, a true philosophy. When Joe came, the first thing Joe did was took us down to Goodison and said, right, come watch this, this video. Right, here's AC Milan or, or Juventus, I think it was at the time. He said, look how hard they're working, pressing the ball, doing this, doing that. Mistakes are always in, in the opposition's half. They press high and they do this and they work, they work their socks off and they're on 10 times more money than you. So if they can do it, you can do it. So this is what we're going to do. Whenever we get the ball, we're going we're gonna to go along we're going to press them in their half and they're going to make mistakes in their half 
or we are, and it's not going to cost us any goals. You know, I think we only let one goal in in that FA Cup run, uh, and we kept a lot of clean sheets because I think I think two weeks before, I think we we went to Ipswich and got a draw and we were safe, and then I think the following week we drew it. Coventry so we had a, good, a fantastic team spirit it, our team wasn't as good as the one that won the leagues in the 80s but what we did have was a brilliant team spirit and, and a real desire to fight for each other so you know both squads were, 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 were different in terms of quality and things but the spirit was the same in both and the spirit was brilliant to be fair yeah after after Joe Royal Howard Kendall comes in for the third spell and I was I've read about in your book you mentioned that the pre-season in Guernsey in 1997 which really sounds explosive and traumatic what are your like what are your memories of that pre-season oh it was funny to be fair it wasn't you know Howard was brilliant in all fairness and he just he came and he came back and he we got to Guernsey and he'd lined the bar up with champagne Said, right, think champagne, drink champagne, I'm gonna win the league. So right, fine. Right, you can all go out tonight, lads, just make sure you're back reasonable. So I know Duncan Duncan had gone out and he'd he'd had a drink and he he, he couldn't find the hotel on the way back. So he, he looked across and he thought, Right, I can see this field, but I know the hotel's on the other side. So he legged it through the field, got to the other side and thought, shit, I don't I don't know where I am now. So he, he flagged the taxi uh, he flagged the car down and said to the fellow, look. I'll give you 10 if you take me to the hotel. And the, the fellow went, oh, I'm marking you tomorrow because you're playing Guernsey. <laughs> so the centre-half who was marking him actually took him back to the hotel. <laughs> I would trust everybody. Do you know what I mean? I would trust everybody. You you do what you got. You've got to play hard, but you've also got to work hard and you've got to play the game properly. And I think he's, you know, some people took the piss out of his trust and some people actually did what he's supposed to do. And that's what I'm saying about Maybe some of the times he come back, there wasn't that trust and that that camaraderie there for him to work with. And I think he, he made his mind up about players pretty quickly. And I think sometimes coming back twice, I think he looked at some of the players and thought, well, I wouldn't have signed these and I've got to work with these. And it, it's always difficult to work with players that, you know, you're not are not as good as the ones that you previously had. And he had no real, I suppose, money or, or, or chance of getting the players that he really wanted. So he was on a loser both times. And it didn't end great both times, so I think it was it was difficult for him in all fairness. But pre-season was always like that, to be fair. You know, we had a lad called uh, Robert Walshiki who joined us from Poland. He used to training three times a day pre-season. He couldn't believe we only trained once, and then the lads could go out if they wanted to go out. But it, again, it was the onus was on you to be responsible for yourself. And I think when I look at that, and I look at today's where they can't, you know, they can't breathe without somebody sitting by him saying. Oh, now breathe out. Oh, now breathe in. I, I think you, you, you need a little bit of, of both. You need the responsibility to look after yourself and the independence. You know, you don't need people looking over your shoulder all the time. I, I don't think it's healthy. And I think, you know, when, when you look at the pressurised bubble that you're in anyway, you don't need to have more pressure put, you know, by everybody telling you what to do 24 hours a day. It killed me. I don't think I could play now, to be fair. So Neville, your career after Everton, you dropped down the league and went to Torquay. I think a really brave thing to do, drop down the league. So, but how did you find your time at Torquay? I loved Torquay. I didn't want to go in the first place. Um, I had Dave Watson's brother, who was a centre half for us, uh, Alex. He was down there, and he phoned Dave and said, "Look, we're desperate for the goalie. Um, we've got a 16-year-old here. We can't possibly play on Saturday. You know, will he? Will he can you try and get him to play?" And he phoned me up and said, oh, Dave, I'm not interested. I can't be asked going down there. So, and he said, look, just go down there for a couple of weeks and just help him out. So I went, oh, and 
I only did it for Dave Watson, really, and then I got down there, and it was great, in all fairness. It was, I learned something else down there as well. It was just brilliant. Brilliant place, brilliant, brilliant our club. I, I really enjoyed it, and then, and what I did realise is, is, you know, the lower down you go, the, the less you, the, the more you play opposites. So if you shout keepers, they boot it away. And if you shout away, they just let it go. Because it concentrates so much on the ball. But as a group of lads, it was great. I mean, we I think we threw the first, or won the first game. It was a great introduction. I think when they had a corner, it fell out on me straight in the face. Um, so it was a nice introduction to League Two football. But as a place and as people, brilliant. I played 25 games and got player of the year. It was great. That's how bad we were that I got player of the year. <laughs> and I trained about, I think that, that season I trained three times. What goalkeeping training I did was, was, was basically zero the whole rest of the season. Because I used to be training at your, uh, I think Huddersfield and Tramia then. So I'd train their goalies. And then I would drive down to Torquay Friday night, stay Friday night, play Saturday, come back. And I, and I, I, I hardly ever train. I could train. We have little Mickey Mouse five side stuff, but I went gold. But that was all. That was all. So I never actually physically did any goalkeeping training whatsoever for the whole season. And player of the year, amazing. Yeah, that says something about either me or them, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but people forget, like after Torquay, you ended up at Bradford. You were a, a player coach. You were fourth choice, and then of course, all three goalkeepers ahead of you get injured, and suddenly. Um, I think you're, you're one of the oldest players to have played in the Premier League. I think you met, you played play your last game on the 12th of March 2000. But you couldn't believe the circumstances that led to making another appearance in the Premier League. No, I was gutted, to be fair. I didn't want to play in the first place. Um, <laughs> you know, it was, again, it was wrong place, wrong time. They had, a, they had another 16-year-old kid who was, who was never going to be able to play in that game because it was a local derby against Leeds. So, again, it was wrong place, wrong time. But I did it right in the game, actually. I did. I did. I felt okay in the game, and then got slaughtered after. But just normal, isn't it? And then, obviously, the manager went on, and I stayed then with the other couple of managers. And it was just Bradford's a great club. It's it's been it's an amazing career, like from kind of starting after twenty, and then you go all the way through to the year two thousand. But Chris, you always end with the same question, don't you? Yeah, I should say, absolutely fascinating chat, Neville. Loved it. And your new book, Mind Games, The Ups and Downs of Life and Football, is out now, even more insight into your amazing mind. And we all ask this last question of all of our guests, and I can honestly say, I don't think I've ever been as excited about the answer than we are today, because I don't know how this is going to go. So the, the question we always end on is, if you could press a button and go back in time to the 1st of January 1990 and do it all again. Do 1980 for you. Okay, we'll go back to 1980 for you and you can go back and do it all again, would you? No, I don't think so. I don't, I don't see the point. It's a waste of my time, isn't it? <laughs> but I've already done it, haven't I? I'd be going back as a 62-year-old. I'd be shit. <laughs> I'll take that as the answer. <laughs> Neville Southall, it's been an absolute pleasure. We've wanted you on for ages, so it's so good to talk to you. Thank you very much. Pleasure, Josh. Thanks a lot. That was Neville Southall, an absolute pleasure. Um, loved speaking to him. His book, Mind Games, is out now. It's almost Christmas. Why not? Thank you to Neville. Uh, if you sign up to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash quickly, Kevin, there is an extended director's cut of that Neville Southall interview with a discussion of the Michael Owen soccer skills video. Who 
wouldn't want to hear his views on that. Uh, thank you for listening. We are back next week with the amazing Andy Townsend discussing the Republic of Ireland in the 90s. Until then, Robbie Slater, see you later. Bye. Michael Jordan was able to do was take it to that Babe Ruth place where basketball had become ingrained in the country's entire consciousness. The Air Jordan was something that transcended all these different borders that hadn't really been transcended before. The shoes gained very quickly a huge street value in American culture. And all of a sudden overnight, it was just like everybody wanted them. What the hell is a Nike doing? We're in now the 80s, and we're putting a black guy on television to sell shoes to white America. What he did in terms of global marketing and giving other black athletes a blueprint to do that was quite revolutionary. David Falk, to his credit, said, I got a name for this thing. It should be called Air Jordan. Michael always tells me it's the first and the last great idea I ever had. <laughs> It was like what the Beatles were, people screaming, and then you had Michael Jordan. You had Paul and John rolled into one. They'd hoped to sell $3 million worth of shoes, and they sold $126 million the first year. No one did for marketing what Nike and Michael did for marketing. Nobody. Everything he was doing correlated to those shoes, and we bought into that because what was the tagline they were selling us? Is it the shoes? You said, Damn, man, I can't be Michael Jordan, but I can have this piece of what he represents. The demand of his product and product with his name on it had reached a point where crimes were basically being committed. Nike, they have a responsibility in this, and they have to do something. And if nothing happens, we'll see more cases like this. You'll see more mothers and fathers like me. The real problem is they don't want to address it in a meaningful way. If the Air Jordans are in the image of Michael Jordan, shouldn't he have some say about what's going on? I am in no way, shape, or form blaming Nike for my son's death, but they can say something. One Man in His Shoes, out now in selected cinemas and on VOD from October 26th. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.